Here's a question for you. How much money do you think Canadians spend on single event sports betting every year? Would it surprise you to hear that we spend about $10 billion using illegal bookies and a further $4 billion on international betting websites? That is not a made up number. That is according to the federal justice minister, David Lametti, uh, because things are about to change here in Canada. The Justice Minister has unveiled legislation to legalize single-event sports betting in this country, and that is a change of direction for the Trudeau government, for sure. One person, though, has been trying to do this for years, trying to get this done, and it's our next guest, actually. It's Kevin Waugh, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Saskatoon Grasswood, who originally brought this bill forward. Kevin, thank you for being back with us. Yeah, good morning. Everything's going well here. <laughs> oh, I hope so. So tell me, how long have you been trying to legalize single-game sports betting in this country? Well, last February, I introduced C-218, single-game betting. And there's a line in the criminal code that we need to eliminate to give the provincial jurisdictions like B.C. Uh, a chance to do single-game. So right now, as you know, Simi, in this country... Uh, all we can do is pro-line, sports select, and that is parlays. In this country right now, we are betting $500 million a year on pro-line. Uh, you were correct. Uh, the gray market, the criminals like Hells Angels and so on, the bookies in this country, uh, reach $10 billion and another $4 billion on on the offshore websites. So it's a private member's uh, me in December, uh, their legislation was C-13, but I beat them to the poll. They had a couple of opportunities, actually, to introduce the bill, and they pulled it at the last moment. So I went ahead with the private member's bill, and it has now passed Parliament. So we've had third reading. It passed Parliament. We're into the Senate, and that's where we sit right now as the Senate gets together on May 4th. Listen, it's not very often that a private member's bill gets this far along, so you must feel pretty good about that. Oh, I feel great. This is the third time, though, Simi. Uh, Joel Cromartin of the NDP started this uh, way back, uh, 2014. He got to the Senate. It was crushed in the Senate. Then we had the election in 2015, so the bill was dropped, and then Brian Massey brought it forward in 2017, didn't make it through the House of Commons. So this is third time. Is it lucky? Well, I think we have a good opportunity now. And one reason is the professional leagues all signed a letter of recommendation to me last June of 2020 saying they want in Canada now a regulated single-game sports betting bill. So I've got the blessings of Gary Bettman and so on in the NHL, the NFL, mm-hmm. Major League Baseball, CFL, and soccer. They want to see this in Canada being regulated, and that would be BC lotteries, which so, they've done for 30 years. Right. So clearly the temperature, I think, on this issue has changed, hasn't it? Do you think a lot of that has to do with in the United States now? Some states down there have legalized this, and so we think, well, if it's, if it's going along, time to get on that bandwagon. Yeah, it changed in 2018 when the state of New Jersey challenged the Supreme Court in the United States over single-game betting and won. 
Uh, as you may know, BC, all we could do in British Columbia is fly down to Vegas and bet in Las Vegas and Nevada for single game betting. Well, New Jersey challenged that in 2018 and won. So today in the United States, we have over 24 states legalizing single game betting. The latest was Florida on the weekend. And I think this has been the big push now in Canada to have our own model and give the provincial jurisdictions the right to roll it out right. when they can. Kevin, what do you think it is that, that appeals to people about this? Like, that's billions and billions of dollars Canadians are spending every year. Why do you think they do that? Entertainment, I think. Um, you know, sports betting has always been around. We can see that with the illegal $14 billion that we know of being uh, bet today in the country. Um, I think it's a form of entertainment, um, you know, for the professional leagues like the CFL and the BC Lions, they want to reconnect with those 18 to 35. Now, there's no question the CFL has lost that demographic and would like to bring it back through single game betting. I've heard from many CFL players and general managers in support of this bill, mm-hmm. but I think Canadians generally just Uh, It's a form of entertainment. Yes, there are fallbacks, gambling addictions, mental health. But right now, the provinces, if this bill does pass through the Senate, can take a portion of this money and give it to mental health and gambling addictions. For right now, nothing is happening on the gray market. So are you confident that this time is going to be the charm that it's going to get done? Well, I don't know. I guess I'm in the ninth inning now, two out, and I'm on the mound. Can we get it done? It's the 27th out. That's always the hardest. And who knows with the Senate, right? They have killed many good private members' bills in the past for various reasons. This is not a government bill. So priority-wise, they don't really have a say in it. They want to do more government legislation, PMBs. Well, then you've got to do house trading. And so I am confident because uh, even the Speaker of the House, Anthony Voda, uh, when the Liberals, when I did bring my bill forward, the Liberals said, you know, this is kind of like our bill. He's put everything in there in the Justice Committee. So this is like a government bill. So I am yeah. hoping this time we get it done. Okay, well, we'll keep track. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thank you, and uh, best of luck out there in in BC. I know thank the Canucks you. have had a, a bad run. Oh, but. Kevin, don't get us. Nobody's betting on that these days. Let me tell you, Kevin. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I know <laughs> that's Kevin. While he's a conservative member of Parliament for Saskatoon Grasswood, so he's been trying. It is a private member's bill. However, as he pointed out, and this is the important thing, the federal government, the Trudeau government, has offered support for it and put some measures into this private member's bill. So you can say that the government does support this. It is now in the hands of the Senate, but it would change a lot of things. That means that Canada's on the verge of legalizing single-game sports betting. And it does seem like the time is finally right for this to happen. Now, what do you think about that? $14 billion is how much money the justice minister says is spent illegally in this country every year on single-game sports betting. So do you like this idea or not? Would you do this? If it was legal and you could go on to you know, the BCLC website and do this, would you, would you start doing single-game betting? online, uh, legally. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi.
U.S. President Joe Biden marked his first 100 days in office with a uh, an address to the a joint session of Congress. Looked a little different, though, because not everybody was actually there. Many of them were there virtually. But boy, did he have a lot to say in terms of spending money. A $1.8 trillion investment is what, yeah, tr- trillion with a T, is what he is talking about. Investments in children, families, and education to rebuild the U.S. economy. For more on that, uh, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so this was a very ambitious speech. It was ambitious. Uh, you're right, $1.9 trillion. That's on top of a uh, multi-trillion dollar package and plan to have to do with infrastructure and the COVID-19 relief uh, plans that have already been approved uh, in the U.S. So we're on the approach to $6 trillion in his first 100 days, if that is able to get passed. And you're right, it is ambitious. But we heard the president time and time again say that this uh, it's time for generational change. And there's a fear uh, amongst Democrats and amongst the White House that if they don't move forward on things like paid leave, on things like family leave, on things like uh, digital infrastructure, that the U.S. is going to fall further behind and make it more difficult to catch up to other countries around the world. So what has some of the kind of political reception been to what he had to say? Well, I mean, look, over the last four years under Donald Trump, Republicans uh, kind of pushed aside their usual fear when it comes to, uh, you know, spending and deficits. Uh, and that has now reversed. All of a sudden, they are very fearful of spending deficits and raising taxes uh, on corporations in order to pay for this. So there is fierce pushback. But this is kind of nothing new. Over the last 100 days, we've seen how partisan politics is. Joe Biden, uh, I believe he's only had maybe 11 bits of law that have been put into uh, onto his desk for signage since he started. That's well below the 30 for Donald Trump, below 14 for Barack Obama. There is a political shift, a political split, divide in this country now. Uh, and that's obvious. And it was apparent last night with people like Ted Cruz simply falling asleep during the speech. Hmm. Oh, nice political uh, gesture that is. Um, but don't they run the risk as well here of, of what the voters are going to say? Because like, polling, from what I understand, shows that American people support a lot of what is in these packages. And I think that he is trying to hedge the bets here that Republicans could potentially fall flat. You know, more than 50, somewhere between 53, 54 percent of Americans generally approve where Joe Biden is right now. But 30 percent of Republicans actually approved where Joe Biden was when it came to his COVID-19 response. Not a majority, but still enough, but not enough to flip them to his side. So there's a fear here that if Joe Biden is able to kind of put on the table things like paid family leave, like getting broadband Internet out into the rural parts of the country that don't have it, like trying to be able to bring blue collar Americans uh, to a better standard of living. If Republicans kind of kill that, uh, there's a chance that, you know, 18 months out when we're in the midterm elections here, that Republicans could potentially fall flat. So there's some strategy here that if he doesn't get what he wants, we know where to place the blame. Right. And some of this ambitious stuff, I mean, he's talking about uh, free pre-K for for children. He's talking about, um, you know, some of the other big stuff they talked about was two free years of community college. I mean, this is big. This is big. And this is where Republicans are calling him a radical. They're saying that he's aligning himself with Bernie Sanders, with Elizabeth Warren, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But, you know, we have to understand that that is a growing segment in population of the United States. And they are a younger population. And they are going to be the ones carrying the voting 
moving torch over the next several years. So it's not that he's giving in to them. He's just accepting that this is kind of the shift that America is going through right now. Uh, but also, this is the point when he says it's generational. This is a time to make these kind of big moves. You have such a stark difference when you look at just how government and politics work in Canada and the U.S. and the amount that can- uh, Canadians can benefit from having, uh, you know, a slightly bigger uh, footprint of the government. Republicans don't like that, but they really could be on the losing end uh, if they don't kind of play along or at least show an intention to play along. Yeah, Have they found their footing yet of how to push back against Joe Biden? Because I know they were struggling with that in the beginning. Well, I mean, look, they, they, they bank on the text messages and the emails that come out from Donald Trump because they still are banking on, you know, potentially President Trump's heavy hand playing into their party still. They can push back. They can stomp their feet. They don't have the majorities right now. So they are still looking to the past uh, in order to potentially draw out how their future is going to look. We'll see. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, talking about uh, the speech last night, President Joe Biden's uh, address to the joint session of Congress. It was a pretty ambitious speech in terms of the amount of money that he laid out for infrastructure spending there, too. But yeah, interesting times. Boring Joe Biden. And and I, I guess he embraces that because it, it means that the public is uh, kind of, you know, they like the boring right now, which who knew that would happen right after the last four or five years. This is Mornings with Simi. Province of Ontario went from not thinking about paid sick leave to having it done yesterday uh, by announcing that workers who've been impacted by COVID-19 will be able to access three paid sick days. It's called the Ontario COVID-19 Worker Income Protection Program, and it came together fast, mostly because of the criticism the government has found itself under in Ontario because of their shockingly high number of cases and hospitalizations, and a big problem has been workplace outbreaks. So many people here in BC are calling for this province to follow, do what Ontario did. So why should we? Is that the best way to go? Joining us now is Laird Cronk, president of the BC Federation of Labour. Thanks for joining us. Hey, good morning, Simi. So is this the way to go then? Like three paid sick leaves to people who don't, who shouldn't be going to work sick? Yeah, thanks for that question. So for about 13 months now, we've been calling for a true paid sick leave program in British Columbia. And, you know, a federal program came um, came to fruition uh, in the summertime, and largely thanks to our Premier, who pushed hard with uh, others at the Premier's table with the Prime Minister to bring in a plan nationally. Unfortunately, it fell short in many, many ways. So since then, we've been um, attempting to get the federal government to change the plan. They didn't do it. It wasn't in the budget uh, last week. And we've been asking the provincial government for some time now, as they've done with other things, to fill the gaps, to bring in a true program, something that when a worker wakes up in the morning, and they say, you know what, I just don't quite feel right today. Um, they have the ability economically to stay home without worrying about the bills, the mortgage. I don't want them to think, uh, as many unfortunately have been doing, because we know there's workplace transmission. We see Dr. Henry talk about it. We've heard it in the media. And we've seen it in the WCB statistics. Um, we don't want the worker to think, oh, man, I'm so afraid of not paying the bills. You know, maybe this is a seasonal allergy. I get this every year. Maybe I'll just hope for the best. Right. That economic piece has to come off the table. That's what we're looking for in British Columbia. But Laird, what has taken BC so long? Are you disappointed that the government has taken so long to get this really going? Well, I was encouraged when the federal program was being pushed and was coming forward. I was pushing the premier, as were others, to try and get a national program. I've been now pushing the government here for some time. It's true I was disappointed it wasn't in our provincial budget because I had lost faith before that that the federal government would actually 
make changes. They showed no signs that I could see. But, you know, it's about the art of the possible today. What we have now is the Premier, I understand, yesterday in the legislature, uh, I believe, said that within uh, what sounded to me like a week or so, we could see a paid sick leave program here in British Columbia. I think he said after the break week of of legislature, which is this coming week, something's coming forward. I'm very excited about that. We've put a plan forward to government back in June, uh, and our plan calls for that kind of access where, where a worker wakes up and they know they're going to get their regular wage so they can stay home, get tested, not go to work, not spread this, which then goes to other workers, goes to their families. You know, these are workers, I mean, who are our heroes. In a way, these are workers who right. can't work from home, often low wage. They do the work that keeps you and I home, and we need to protect them when they're sick. Laird, is three days enough, though? That's what Ontario is offering. Is that, do you think, what BC should do? Well, I can tell you that our plan called for 10 and it calls for the, the employer to pay it. And then for employers who are hurting due to COVID-19, and, and we all know there are some that are hurting. We also know there are some that are doing very well during COVID-19. For the ones that are doing very well, this would be a, a small and important investment in the safety of their workers and in keeping their business going, not having an outbreak in their business. Uh, for those who are hurting, the employers that are hurting, we've said, much like the federal 75% wage subsidy that the federal government would give to employers to keep people working during covid the provincial government should set up something for work for workplaces that are truly hurting mm-hmm. financially and assist them in the short term. So I would like to see, uh, we've called for 10 days. Uh, the key is what is it that's going to have that worker in the morning say, I'm going to do the right thing, stay home, get tested, not go to work because I'm worried about paying the bills. That is the question. Laird, thanks for your time this morning. Uh, happy to be here and uh, stay safe, Simi. You too. That's Laird Krog, president of the BC Federation of Labour. So they're calling for 10 days. Ontario went with three uh, days of paid sick leave. So what will BC decide to do? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, Vancouver's often tagged with that label of being a no-fun city. You think back to, you know, an era, a bygone era, when we used to have so many great events in the city, right? Remember the Molson Indy? That feels like such a long time ago. Well, last night, actually, Vancouver City Council, by a vote of 9 to 1, approved a partnership with a Montreal-based company to bring Formula E, which is the battery electric car racing event that's based on Formula One, to Vancouver. This will be at no cost to the local government. So let's find out what this would look like. Joining us now is Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Cindy. What did you like about this idea? Oh my gosh, what's not to like? It's uh, It really is an electrifying opportunity. And it's, I, I know that's a pun because it's an electric uh, race, but it, it just checks all of the boxes. And so it's more than a race. It's a Three parts. So it's a two-day business conference. It's focused on sustainability, bringing leaders together to talk about and inspire the electrification of transportation. Um, there'll be two phenomenal and amazing concerts um, that people can enjoy with international acts. And then we will have sort of a penultimate, which is the one-day Formula E race taking place in Northeast Falls Creek. Right. I know that one of the things that eventually did in the Molson Indy was the noise because, you know, at the beginning there were no condos there. And of course, towards the end, there were so many condo buildings there. Uh, but that's not an issue with this, is it? No, that's one of the beautiful things about this event. It's really easy on the ears. Uh, the decibel level is really low at 65 decibels, which is below the city of Vancouver bylaw at 70. Um, and that's about half of a, an Indy car. So it's quiet. You apparently can even hear music playing on the track of the cars. Now, has this been done elsewhere? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is now a worldwide event um, and really popular. It's in uh, New York, London, Valencia, Monaco, Puebla, Mexico, Berlin, um, so all over the world. Do you think Vancouver needs events like this um, to to kind of get people thinking in terms of the fun things we can do? You know, other than sort of the economic impact and the ability uh, to sort of support our green goals, I think one of the biggest wins in this event was has been the public response and the response from industry. Um, we heard from the president of tourism in Vancouver and the BC Restaurant Association, um, and they said this is going to bring hope to people. I'm actually getting a bit choked up talking about it because the president of the Restaurant Association said to council last night, he said with tears in my eyes, I wholeheartedly implore you to improve this. We need to get to a yes. And uh, in tourism in Vancouver, they said that our hotel occupancy is down 65% year over year, and there are people out of work that are just looking at our businesses that have been lost and others that are trying to hang on and the hope that this is broad has just been amazing. So then if we're looking ahead to 2022, which we hope will be better times, are there other events do you think that Vancouver needs to start planning for events to, you know, get that excitement going again? Yeah, I do think that, you know, um, we need to be laying the track for the future and not just focused on today on pandemic response. Um, I think that we need to be a city of start that starts from yes and not from no. It has been very difficult to bring events here. Um, in Vancouver, so hopefully this signifies uh, an enthusiasm, signifies a new way forward, but Vancouver's got a, a huge amount to offer in terms of events and a huge appetite for them, and I want to see us target more of these. So do you think some of the old events will just be coming back, or do you think that we'll be seeing some new things happening? Uh, I think we'll see both. Um, I, you know, hopefully we'll see, you know, tried and true favorites, um, like um, Lee Silver's Light Fireworks, one of my favorites who started when I was on the cardboard was the Symphony at Sunset, which uh, you know, 100,000 people enjoying the symphony um, at uh, Sunset Beach, which was phenomenal and just amazing for people to do that. So I think people are yearning to get back to it, but I also think there's an opportunity to build back better. And this is a 100% net zero event certified by the UN. Um, so this is, I think, the future and the way we want to go. I know one of the other things you've been talking about this week is expanding the patio space, uh, particularly along Granville Street. Now, when this is all over, the uh, patios have become very, very popular. Is the city going to have to rethink its strategy here because you can't kind of take something away that a restaurant has started to try to enjoy? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I think that it shouldn't have taken a pandemic for us to really be bolder about how we use our public space. It's more people friendly and you know people first and I think that we've seen that huge need we approved I think it's about 515 temporary patios to date since we started that program um, and people love them and I think the ideas of piloting something like large pop-up plazas like we're talking about on Gravel Street as a pilot for the summer um, the response to that is also fantastic so I think it's a legacy um, and we need to make sure that we don't lose that after COVID because it really was our opportunity to think outside the box. So yeah when are the what are the next steps in that plan and that idea? Uh, so the next steps for that will be um, continuing the temporary program this year we are City of Vancouver's forgiving uh, our hope that they're going to formally forgive um, when we have a council meeting later this month all the patio fees for this year for the regular patios, but you'll see more pop-up plazas in neighborhoods, the smaller ones, and then council will discuss this idea uh, for the gravel pilot um, in, later in May. So hopefully you'll start to see a lot more activation of our public space. Okay, so looking ahead, though, to this Formula E uh, event, so is this set to take place then in 2022? Yeah, it's later for summer 2022, looking at July, and uh, the event dates um, haven't been finalized yet, but uh, we're looking for next summer. 
So clearly, if somebody has the idea for a big event in Vancouver for next year and the year after, now's the time to bring it forward. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we, are, we, are, we are ready to go. We have to be open for business and our, and our industries need it and, and people need it. Um, people are, it's just, you could, I could feel the mood change and just the response from residents. Like, they're just excited to have something positive to look forward to. That's so interesting because you're right. Like, quite often, you know, we get tagged with this, oh, people here like to complain. They'll find something to not like about an event that's going on. But you think because of what's happened right now, people are like, yes, we want more events? Yeah, I do. I think uh, I think that that's absolutely true. And I think it's also true that this event um, is so spectacular on a lot of levels that it, it, it everybody liked it across the spectrum, right? So the sustainability advocates, it checks it checks their boxes. The people that love fun, it checks theirs. Um, you know, so it was just it's got the concerts. Um, so it it just had something for everybody. Well, we'll see. It sounds like fun. Thanks so much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. That is Sarah Kirby Young, Vancouver City Councillor. She's one of the nine councillors who voted in favour of this. The vote was nine to one. And this was to approve a partnership with Montreal-based OSS Group to bring Formula E uh, to Vancouver. This is, it's like Formula One racing, but it's battery electric cars instead. And it's not very loud. I think the loudest it gets is uh, Skytrain's actually louder than what these cars are, which is why, obviously, for so many people, that's a huge factor, right? Because Molson Indy, as great as it could be, sometimes the pollution and the noise just got to be too much in downtown Vancouver. This does not have any of those issues. Also, I do think it's time. People are looking ahead. They're they're excited about the potential for big events. They see it happening in places like Australia, New Zealand, uh, and they think, okay, we've got something, we've got to have something to look forward to. Are you ready to start planning for big events in 2022? You think, like, yep, it's going to be time. I'm ready to do that. Email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about how you can help, in particular, how you can help workers in the hospitality industry. Tourism, hospitality, restaurants, they have been disproportionately hard hit by this ongoing pandemic. And now as we head into the warmer months, there are ways that you can help out. Different ways, actually. The one that we heard about was that throughout the month of May, the commercial drive location in Memphis Blues, for instance, is going to be donating 20% of sales from their special takeout menu to the BC Hospitality Foundation because the foundation has a fund where they raise money to help workers. So we thought, let's find out more about this. Tina Harris joins us now, the Executive Director of the BC Hospitality Foundation. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simi. So tell me about this fund then. When did this get started? The BC Hospitality Foundation was uh, started in 2007. 2007, um, it was a group of wine agents, actually, that got together to help a fellow wine agent who had a um, car accident and um, about three months later had a stroke and was paralyzed. and uh, Not paralyzed, I'm sorry, he couldn't breathe um, uh, without a machine that cost $50,000. And that uh, that machine was not covered by medical, so he uh, so a group of wine agents got together and raised fifty thousand dollars for him, gave the money to him, and he said the only way he would take it is if we started a uh, a charity that helped out other people. So that's how it started. Well, that's a great start, actually, to mm-hmm. it. But I can imagine that you must like the demands on the fund must be extraordinary over the last year. Over the last year, um, we've had lots of inquiries. They've actually slowed down, surprisingly enough. That's a story within itself. Um, 
I think, you know, we help out people in hospitality that come across financial difficulties because of a health condition to themselves or a family member. Um, we help out about 40 people a year. And, um, you know, I think there's less, usually there, we have about five different situations where there's car accidents. So I think there's less cars on the road. We're getting less applications for support. Um, there are less people doing um, extreme sports. Um, so, um, but we, and we are getting some inquiries with um, COVID, um, but we're not an insurance company. We help out people that once, if they are diagnosed with COVID and they're in the hospital and they're in a financial uh, predicament, then we help them out in that way. Okay. And so how have you been raising money? We are not government funded. Um, we're funded by basically people in within the industry. Um, we rely a, a lot on hotels and restaurants and tourism attractions to uh, to support our online lotteries, our events, um, and uh, and so that has slowed down quite a bit. But uh, we've had a lot of wineries, breweries, and for instance, Memphis Blues that have stepped up and uh, and helped us to bring money in. Um, you know, Memphis Blues is doing twenty percent um, in May for their uh, Memphis in May um, takeout and um, we've got a supporters page on our website that talks about uh, Township 7's donating $10 per order um, to the BC Hospitality Foundation for the next uh, two months. Corsolette's Winery um, as well is donating a dollar per bottle. Nickel Vineyards has got a great Pinot Gris that they're donating $5 per bottle. Um, Marquee Wine Cellar on Davy is um, all their um, Malbecs from Argentina. Um, they're donating a dollar per bottle. So it's you know, it's it's hard work to get, you know, a dollar per bottle here and there, but every bit counts. That is so nice to hear, though, because it sounds then, Dana, that there is some optimism out there, even among people who are in the industry. Yes, I think, you know, I'm hoping that there is. Um, the You know, it's great to have a restaurant uh, step up. Um, restaurants have been hit really hard, as we know, and... Um, um, but, you know, someone like Memphis Blue stepping up and giving us 20% and, uh, um, and what a great deal. Okay, so what you need is more restaurants then or just more places to sign on. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult right now to, I'm hesitant to, to, to be asking restaurants to help us. We're here to, we're here to help their restaurant staff. Um, so right now, you know, the wineries, the breweries, and um, lots of the agents are, are, are stepping in to help out, whereas usually when the restaurants are in, in their heyday, they're the ones to help out, but now's the time to be helping them. That's so interesting then. So you've got different, obviously, parts of the industry that are doing well. So are you saying wineries and breweries have been doing all right during the pandemic? Uh, many of them, certainly um, um, the, the ones that are helping us out are um, doing, doing well. And then the, um, the private stores and, and what, private liquor stores as well. Right. You also offer scholarships. Is that right? Yeah. This, um, we're just getting ready to um, give out all our scholarship money. Uh, the deadline, um, uh, we're getting all the names in tomorrow, but uh, we're giving out over $55,000 worth of scholarships uh, this year. And that's awesome because we're keeping people in the hospitality industry in the culinary side in hotel management um sommeliers uh wine training and we've actually got a really um five great scholarships that are going out to um uh future winemakers and viticulturalists and um and people that want to get into the wine business and there's also a fantastic um craft brewery scholarship that the craft brewers association does um, gives out once a year to help women get into the brewing association. So we, we work with those. Were you worried, you know, in the last year that like the industry was going to lose people, like there were people were going to go find something else to do and not come back? Yes, we're all worried about that. You know, I've always made my, 
made my living in hospitality. Uh, it's been very good to me, and, and it's, it is a great way to, to, and to make a living and to have. A, it's really a lifestyle, and if you like being around people and serving people, then it's, it's great. Um, but, yeah, it's been definitely a worry, and, I, and we've had a lot more scholarship applications this year and a lot more people sponsoring scholarships as well. Okay, so where can people find more information? Um, our website is bchospitalityfoundation.com. Uh, we've got a newsletter as well that um, we have some great lotteries that happen throughout the year because, as I say, we're not government-funded. Um, and as well, we've got a Shop Our Supporters page. And if they get a chance, we've also got a promotion that's happening called Hospitality Hustle. Um, it's really a mental health and physical health. It was started last year to get people in the hospitality industry and people that miss the restaurant business out exercising um, and, and sort of tracking it, and we've got the finish line happening on May 30th, um, and that's going to be an online dance party. So if you go to hashtag hospitality hustle, you'll see lots of people in the industry that are out there just keeping physically it. motivated. Yeah. yeah, it's really great. I love it. All right, well, have a great day, Dana. Good luck with this. Thank you so much. Take that's care. Dana Harris is the executive director of the BC Hospitality Foundation. Like, just imagine for that whole industry, keeping people's spirits up, keeping people still invested in the industry, making sure you have future employees, all big challenges. So check out their website for how you can help. We'll be right back. This is Mornings with Simi. We know that events like Playland are not going to be opening this weekend as they had anticipated. We spoke with Laura Balance about that yesterday. So they'll wait now until June after the May long weekend. But they do believe that their plan for opening eventually is safe. They said they've put a lot of precautions into place. So we wanted to know, like, are those precautions working? Are those the things that we can do uh, once we're past this area of restrictions, once we get into, say, the months of June and July? So we thought, let's talk to an expert about this. Joining us now is Michael Brower, UBC uh, professor in population and public health. Michael, thanks for joining us. Sure. So these companies that do this, where they have these plans, right, to operate safely, where they put in distancing and masking, do these things work? Well, what we know um, is certainly outdoors is much safer than indoors. There's really very little um, reporting that we have of sort of verified outdoor transmission, but we do know it occurs. So these plans are important. Um, And... I, I, you know, we have to see when we get more and more people um, gathering and as we sort of slowly ramp up. Um, so also the, the new part of the equation is these new variants. So there's sort of extra caution. And I think it, it's, it's wise to move very, very slowly, methodically and carefully. But right. in general, from what we know, they should work. Right. But it sounds like also what you're saying, though, is if it worked last year or last summer, it might not necessarily work this summer because the virus has changed. Right. I think um, the things that we need to we need to watch for are more so are these guidelines actually being followed. Uh, I don't think there was a situation last year that the, the transmission is the same. Um, it's just that if you're exposed to less virus now, um, because of the new variants, you may still be infected. That's what's really changed from, from last year. And whereas I think uh, in the past, people may have sort of followed the guidelines, half followed the guidelines. It's really, really important to follow them absolutely now. And, um, and so the, the things that I would look for are, first of all, who are people with? Um, and that, that is a large part in, in the Playland, you know, delaying their opening is, is 
didn't want it to be a place where people who wouldn't ordinarily see each other then sort of come come to congregate. Um, and then those standard things, the distance you are from that person, from those other people, the time you're spending together. Um, this has come up with restaurants, it's sort of the level of ventilation. So is outdoors really outdoors? Um, is there, you know, a lot of fresh air? Is there a lot of exchange of the air? Are people wearing masks? And I mean, are they wearing masks all the time? Um, and then the, the other thing that we're going to have to watch for throughout this is what is the level of transmission in the community? So if things are in a bad place, um, not only do these guidelines have to be followed absolutely, but that's a time to really be much more cautious. When the level of transmission drops down, and we do expect it will drop down uh, as we get into the summer with more vaccination, um, then, then those things sort of become, everything becomes safer. So all of those factors really have to be, have to be looked at. And unfortunately, the, the situation is dynamic. It's not as though something that, that worked uh, six months ago is necessarily going to work uh, today. And the same thing moving forward. I think you made a great point there, though. Like, you know, a company or business can have their plans in place, and theoretically those plans are good, but you actually don't know a whole lot about the behavior of your customers. Right, and I think that's really where we've seen uh, most of the transmission, even when guidelines are, are in place. So we know, for example, in workplaces, um, it's actually during lunch or during breaks that the transmission occurs when, when people may take their masks off to be eating and are just, just dropping their guard. And that's natural um, that people will do that. So that's why, um, you know, this idea of sort of who are you with is, is really, really important. If you're with the, the people that are sort of normally in your bubble, um, then sure, going to Playland is, is, is just as safe as, you know, being outside at a park and, and why not enjoy that? But if you're using uh, Playland as a way to, to meet other people that you wouldn't or, ordinarily meet, then it becomes challenging because we know people will let their guard down. Right, because that's they're craving that social contact, right? Is that why everything is so risky right now? Yeah, absolutely. And, and like everyone, uh, you know, people are, are tired. Um, people need, need releases. And um, so, again, looking at sort of the level of the transmission in the community, what, where are things at, that's a really good gauge, I think, for um, how, what you should be doing. And then just keeping in mind um, something simple like wearing a mask, Right. Um, which really doesn't get in the way of your enjoyment, um, can be super protective. Um, so that's a, just, I think, you know, the easiest thing that people yeah. uh, should just keep in their mind. Well, Michael, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Sure, my pleasure. Interesting discussion. Michael Brower is a UBC professor in population and public health, talking about, yeah, it's one thing for businesses to have their plans, and their plans are good, but the behavior of their customers doesn't always follow that plan. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, announcement this morning having to do with military sexual misconduct and the huge number of cases that have been turning up. For more on what was announced by Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan, we're joined now by Global News political reporter Amanda Connolly. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Okay, so what did we hear? So this this really is kind of the, uh, an announcement of a 
promised external review that we've been told now for nearly three months would be coming after um, Global News first reported on allegations of high-level sexual misconduct in the Canadian military. Uh, what we're hearing today as well is, is who will lead that. It will be led by former Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour. And the, the really kind of key focus here, we're being told, is that it will be looking at how to putting up recommendations to set up an independent reporting system for the military so that members are not having to go through the chain of command, which we've heard um, repeatedly in in testimony from witnesses at committee has been such a barrier to people coming forward and feeling that they are able to get justice. We're also hearing hearing that while that review is being done, the military will be creating a a new internal organization to try and address the need for cultural change and bring together some of the efforts that are underway to to address professional misconduct in the forces. Right. So did the defense minister address what has taken so long, Amanda? Because I know they had a report that said they've had 500 alleged sexual assaults over a five-year period. This seems like it could have been done years ago. Yeah, and this really is the big question here, of course. Uh, we did have a landmark report in 2015 that flagged the, the extent of the sexual misconduct problem in the Canadian military. The government has taken a lot of criticism for not implementing over the course of the last few years here. Um, the, the key recommendation from that, which of course was that there needs to be an independent reporting system for military members. Um, this this is, uh, the, the government is saying that this is going to be a chance to look more broadly at um, what contributes to that problem, not just the fact that it, of course it exists, but also how how leaders are being educated, how people are being educated through the forces, why this behavior seems to be persisting despite efforts like Operation Honor that were put in place in 2015 to try and root this out. That, of course, uh, we've heard repeatedly from experts has not worked um, well enough to to solve the problem. And this is really going to be focusing on kind of taking a broad view of the factors that go into uh, creating the conditions for sexual misconduct and also creating that that much-needed independent reporting system as well. So did the defense minister have anything to say, like personally about, you know, all these questions that he's been facing in the last little while about, for instance, the General Vance allegations and what he knew and when he knew it? He did. This is actually the first time that we've heard the minister say, quote, I'm truly sorry to uh, members of the military who've experienced misconduct that that, uh, he's taken a lot of criticism for not apologizing, for not appearing to take any responsibility for the fact that uh, an allegation was made and was shared with him in 2018 about General Vance, that the government has taken a lot of criticism for not acting or not fully acting to probe that allegation at the time. Uh, he says that they've, the government has heard the people who've come forward, who've been sharing their stories at House of Commons committees, that they've been listening and that they are committed to taking action to solve the problem here. Of course, the big question with, with something uh, this, this extensive is, whether that action will be enough and how quickly it will come. All right, Amanda, thank you very much. Thank you. Amanda Connolly, Global News political reporter in Ottawa, talking about the announcement from Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan, an apology too, as you heard her say there, but uh, making an announcement for a much larger review of military sexual misconduct and to set up plans for an independent reporting system. But my reaction is the same as yours, right? Like, what is taking them so long? This should have happened years ago when these reports first started to surface. More to come on that today. That is a developing story just coming out of Ottawa in the last hour or so. Now, right now, we're going to find out what is coming up on the Mike Smith Show. What does he have in store for us?
Hey, Simi, we've got a great show coming up. We'll talk about yesterday's pop-up vaccine clinics and some of the confusion and anger there. I've got the Liberal Health Critic coming on. We'll also talk about the campaign for sick pay in British Columbia. Looks like the B.C. government could go it alone on this one. And the legal battle over electric scooters. That's all coming up after the 9 o'clock news. Oh, man, that is a big one. Okay, so that is Mike Smith coming up next. You talk, start talking about e-scooters as we've done on this show. And, boy, the emails start coming in because people... People have thoughts. Right now, they're operating in a bit of a gray area. But yeah, it does look like some communities are going to have some pilot projects this summer to let e-scooters happen. And I bet we're going to be talking about it for months to come. So yes, if you do want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.